The Lord be with you. A little while ago, I read an article about a comedian who, when his career started to really take off and he got rich and famous, he hired his brother to manage his finances. And years went by. And then one day when he needed to access his bank account, he ran into a few glitches. So he called his brother and they talked about whatever changes they were going to need to make in the business so it would be easier to access his finances. And that was that. But as it turns out, the glitches that he had with the bank, well, they weren't exactly glitches. And that's because his brother, from that position of trust, had been siphoning off funds from those accounts for years. Over time, he'd managed to steal over $12 million. The loved and trusted brother was a liar and a thief. We get a story like this in the first part of the reading from today, the excerpt from Genesis. It's just a little sample, actually, of the sorts of shenanigans going on in the first families of Scripture. And if you read through all of them, there are a lot of shameful stories. Stories of deception and disgrace and betrayal and a lot of shame. These are the stories of the great forefathers of a people that are speckled through and through with human nature and all of its lumps. First, we got to read about Rebecca, the trickster, who played favorites with her two sons, and she made a total mockery of traditional family hierarchy of the day. She violated cultural precedent and basic human decency as she orchestrated an elaborate ruse to deceive her blind and confused and dying husband, Isaac. All this deceptive energy was spent just so that Jacob could trick his father into bequeathing the family blessing on the wrong son. It's a blessing that we didn't read today, but it includes this absolute gem of a line. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's riches an abundance of grain and new wine. If you've been reading the story, this was the second time, actually, that Jacob had swindled his brother, his big brother Esau, in an earlier story, having cluelessly traded his family inheritance to Jacob for a bowl of stew. After this even more egregious betrayal, Esau was enraged, understandably. And with the damage done, the lying, thieving younger brother, well, he had to run for his life. Effectively banished from the family home, an exile, a shameful outcast, a disgrace. So to save his skin, Jacob skedaddled north at his mother's instruction to the land where her family came from, about a thousand kilometers to the north. After all the lies, after all the tricks, and the con jobs, and betrayal, and the family shame, and after all that disgrace, and after a long day's journey, looking back over his shoulder, no doubt, hoping his 
brother wasn't too close behind. Somewhere along the way, Jacob made camp. And he settled down for his night to rest his road-weary traveler's bones. And we pick up the story with today's second reading of Scripture. You may remember in last week's story, there was a surprising revelation. The revelation that God would provide. And today's story is another wonder, but it's a different sort of story. Like the Abraham story, this is a divine encounter with life-changing intervention by the Creator. But unlike the Abraham story, today's Jacob story challenges a lot of our religious assumptions and habits. Abraham went up on Mount Moriah. It's a story about care and preparation. It's a journey of staggering faith and trust. Abraham's display of devotion and obedience interrupted by the angel of the Lord. In the Abraham story, the formula seems pretty straightforward. The faithful person encounters the God who provides and receives his blessing. A lot of us probably grew up with this blueprint, some version of it, faith measured in devotions. The Jacob story follows no such pattern. This is the story of Jacob, the oblivious scoundrel, and the God who surprises us all yet again. Now, if today's text were a medieval fairy tale, our second reading would have been about Esau. It only seems fair that we would have caught up with Esau sitting alone under a tree, feeling very, very sorry for himself. But then his fairy godmother would have come and swooped in to comfort him. Esau, Esau, I have heard your cries, and I saw everything that your wicked little brother did to you. Bibbity, bobbity, boo. And with my guidance and help, these woodland, with the help of these woodland creatures, we will help you find justice. And after a little narrative tension and some hijinks, maybe a little romance even, the tale would have ended with Jacob humiliated and properly dealt with. He would be dancing for the entertainment of his brother's family, wearing goat skins and a soup pot on his head. But we don't read fairy tales in church. This is scripture with all of its strangeness and its jagged edges and its troubling characters and really unexpected twists. This is the Jacob story. As Jacob made camp, it occurred to him that in all his hurry, he hadn't even packed a pillow, not even one of those little inflatable ones. The gifted innovator that he was, Jacob selected the best stone available to rest his head. And with a pillow rating a, I'm going to say a 7 or 8 on Moe's hardness scale, Jacob drifted off to sleep. And behold, as the Bible often says, behold, Jacob dreamed such a dream, a vision that parted for a moment the fabric of reality, the cosmos unveiled, the vast universe overhead connected to the earth 
by a great mysterious ramping structure. A ladder populated by messengers, angels of God, traveling between the world of humans and creatures and that vast unknowable heaven, the realm of the divine. And then if that, if that wild vision wasn't enough, and if, if that wasn't enough of a trip, the Lord stood beside him and spoke to Jacob, making all sorts of promises. Many children and descendants, real estate even, generations of descendants who would bless all of the families of the earth. And there's this amazing line. Know that I will keep you wherever you go. Heaven's dew and earth's riches, friends. So Jacob woke up with that feeling like he'd been falling. Bam. And after he collected himself, he took a good, long, hard look at his traveler's, at his traveler's pillow. Was this a, a special stone? A, a dream stone? A God stone? No. Not really. Just one of the trillions and trillions of boulders ground and polished and cracked by the wind and the water formed by ancient tectonic plates crumpled together to form the earth. Because the Jacob story isn't about just one stone and one reckless man. This is the story about all of the stones and everything else and the whole of creation and all the peoples of the earth. In the morning, Jacob blessed his rock pillow and stood in that place for a holy moment. And then he carried on with his journey, walking the earth, the future father of 12 tribes. Still a a stinker, sometimes a trickster with challenges and blunders and gambles still ahead of him. And it would be another 20 years or so before Jacob and his brother would finally be reunited. That's another story, another holy moment in the Jacob story. A few years ago, I came across a book called Every Moment Holy, Volume 1. And no, I'm not part of their sales team. It's written by Douglas McKelvey and illustrated in lino cut by a guy named Ned Bustard. This is a collection of liturgies, like you might expect to find in a worship service. But these are liturgies with a really specific point of view. These are liturgies for the holy moments right under our noses every day. The foreword to the book opens with one of my favorite Wendell Berry quotes that I've probably quote too much. There are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. With this view of life in the world, this book becomes a collection of liturgies for the regular moments of life, holy moments that we run the risk of overlooking. This is a practice, a practice of being awake to God in places and moments that don't exactly feel sacred or religious, but most assuredly are. 
McKelvey's liturgies include titles like The Paying of Bills, Changing of Diapers, Before Consuming Media, The First Hearth Fire of the Season. Does anyone here keep bees? There's a liturgy for you. Here's an excerpt from it. We thank you for the small comedy of the creatures, for the humor of their constant severity, for the buzz and the bumbling of bees in flight, for the sight of bees bending slender stalks to harvest in the blooms, their feet shod in bristling boots of gold, their backs fuzzed with bright yellow dust that is the color of joy made visible. You want another one? The changing of diapers. Here's an excerpt. I am not just changing a diaper. By love and service, I am tending to a budding heart that rooted in such grace-filled devotion might one day be more readily inclined to bow to your compassionate conviction. Knowing itself as both a receptacle and reservoir of heavenly grace. I'll read just one more. When welcoming a new pet. With, with that honor, you have offered us the pleasant responsibility of living as companions and caretakers to our fellow creatures. Some of the liturgies take a dark turn. Some of our most holy moments aren't the sweet, but the sour. Each of these liturgies and the multitudes of others that you could recite day after day are simply the recognition of our sacred world. This space we inhabit, a way of naming the grace and mystery and wonder which surrounds and sustains us. It's the practice of pausing on the roadside, in the kitchen, at the hospital, on the riverbank. And like Jacob saying, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. This practice of holy observation can't help but change the paths that we take. What secret hidden, sacred moments might we rediscover, honor, name? What desecrated and vandalized places will we be called to speak out for, to stand up for? Friends, whatever rock or asphalt or carpet or concrete or earth you find underfoot, God is with us, with a love given to us freely, finding us wherever we land ourselves. Thanks be to God.